Amen. Good morning again. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 10. We made it to double digits in the book of Acts. Thankful um, for a, a church that likes just to look what's next on the menu, right? That's what we're trying to do is just walk through a book and see how the Lord continues to speak to us. As you're flipping there, we'll be in Acts chapter 10. We'll look at the first 16 verses. This morning, again, thanks so much um, for praying and uh, for, for sending me. A um, few other things you need to know. So we, we blessed the local church um, with uh, some, some new musical equipment, and uh, they told me to greet the saints in Laurel this morning and say thank you. And throughout the way, several of you were prompted by the Holy Spirit, just said, hey, here's some Here's some funds. I don't know where you want to use it. Just use it. Well, they got used. And so we were able to, to bless uh, saints. Um, I think Justin shared a couple weeks ago that, you know, everybody everywhere has just life, right? Just life. Have issues. Just because you live in another place where Christianity is a minority doesn't mean that you just don't have life, you know? You're, people are just like us everywhere. And uh, so we were able to, bl- to bless uh, several pastors well, just some of it was just ordinary life stuff. We were able to bless churches. Of course, you saw um, we purchased a, a motorcycle for a pastor, and of course, we helped those, those homes. So great stuff, and um, as, as we continue to, uh, to bless people across the world, we'll be sure to, to let you guys know about it. Um, just a reminder of that, Philippians chapter 4, Paul says that he wanted to, to bless other saints, and the Philippians would get to share in on that. So when, whenever we send anybody out, wherever we go, we send them as an extension of the local church, the local church here helping the local church there, and guess what? All of us share in on that reward, and that's what Paul wanted. So rejoice in that this morning. Acts chapter 10, um, we, uh, Justin's been, um, been walking us through. We just finished chapter 9, if you'll remember Big stuff happened in nine, one of the biggest conversions, probably the biggest conversion in the book of Acts. Saul of Tarsus is converted, and as Justin explained a couple weeks ago, the Lord's just been kind of hiding Saul out of sight. A lot of Pharisaism and legalism had to get worked out of him. A lot of self-righteousness got worked out of him. And uh, I think it's very important for us to remember that Saul of Tarsus did not become the Apostle Paul overnight, like regeneration happened in an instant. But he was sanctified, and the Lord had to work on him pretty good before he emerges as we know him now. That's encouraging for all of us that we're on a process. But Saul's been converted. And if you'll remember back in chapter 9, verse 31, Luke gives us this summation statement that the churches were being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so now Luke shines the spotlight, the rest of chapter 9, all of 10, all of 11, and most of 12. This is really the last big picture we see of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. After chapter 12, verse 19, there's only one more reference to Peter in chapter 15 to the Council of Jerusalem. So Luke has given us kind of, this is the last really picture we have of Peter. And there's a reason for it. We'll see it in just a minute. The gospel and the church have been moving out. Jerusalem, then Judea. Remember in chapter eight, the Samaritans come to faith. We've seen a glimpse of the gospel going to the ends of the earth with the Ethiopian eunuch. But what's gonna be unique in chapters 10 and 11 is this is direct apostolic hands-on ministry to Gentiles. 
I hope you know that's what you are this morning. You are a Gentile. If we have anyone of the physical tribe of Abraham or seed of Abraham, I want to meet you, okay? Because uh, sometimes we haven't, I don't think we have very many Jewish people in Jones County. Anyway, this is where we see the next step, the next phase of the church going out is in Peter's dealings with our guy this morning, Cornelius. Chapters 10 and chapters 11 really dominate the story of Cornelius and his conversion really dominate. This is how I want to set it up this morning. So a few weeks ago, I was in a room with a few other Christian brothers, several other people, and then in that room as well, I don't know if a, a, a message at Crosspoint has ever started this way before, but I was in a room with about 14 prostitutes in the middle of a red light district in a major city. One thing was in common with all of these women. They were still active in their work, and they were all HIV positive. The brothers that I was with, one has started a school for the children of women like that. What's awesome about that school is it's an English medium school which means kids wake up in a red light district, they're brought across town, and they sit and learn in a school where English is the language that's spoken. There's a lot going on there, but as I sat there and I looked, immediately what comes to my mind in a situation like that is that I am in a red light district, in a literal hell on earth, these women, some of which had been, you know, trafficked early on, and you feel helpless because there's a bigger power structure going on than just us in that room, people in that room trying to help people. There's places of government that are involved in this and law enforcement that are involved in this. And you can only imagine, as we hear about, you know, throughout the world where there's corruption. But what they've tried to do is to help the ones that are involved in this, but at the same time, liberate the kids through education in English so that when they grow up, guess what? There's a way out. But as I'm sitting there in the midst of that, I'm thinking about Jesus. I'm thinking about how he sat with tax collectors and prostitutes. I'm thinking about his reputation as a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. And I think this morning we all understand that the gospel is for sinners. And the gospel in that sense of where I was is what we would call maybe in South Mississippi the worst of sinners. But can I tell you this morning, the story of Cornelius is not for the worst of sinners. It's not about the worst of sinners. Listen to me. The story of Cornelius is the story of, check this out, the best of sinners. The person that you look at and you think they got it together. The person that you look at and they say, you know what? That person is devout. That person knows God. That person has a relationship with God. And I find it very interesting that the conversion story in chapter 9 was to the chief of sinners. He calls himself that later on, right? The spiritual terrorist. The ISIS of the first century, the guy that's killing Christians and hauling Christians off with hatred in his heart, he's converted in chapter nine. 
But the guy that we're introduced to in chapter 10 is not like Saul of Tarsus, but he has the same need. Let's read the text. We're going to get through verse 16 this morning. That's at least the plan. It's the first time I haven't preached without a translator in three weeks, okay? So we'll see how it goes. Acts chapter 10, let's read the first eight verses. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's, that's 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. We're introduced to a guy who on the outside has it all together. But God, supernaturally, in a very incredible way, gives him a vision. The second half of our passage today is about Simon Peter, who was an apostle, who has followed Jesus from the early days. And guess what the Lord gives him? A vision. And both of these visions are intended to bring about change. That's the title of the message today, Visions and Change. Really two big truths this morning, or two sections, how I want to split this text up. I want you to see Cornelius and his vision, and then we're going to see Peter and his vision. Two men, two visions to bring about change. Let's look at first at Cornelius and his vision. We're told at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. Just a little background there, if you don't know where Caesarea is, it's about 60, 65 miles north of Jerusalem. It's on the western bank on the seashore. Caesarea um, was built by Herod the Great before the birth of Christ. And since 86, it had been the center of Roman administration in Palestine. So this is where all the Roman governors would live. So Pontius Pilate, this is where he was. And you know, we, we read in the, in the gospel accounts how, you know, Pilate had come down to Jerusalem for Passover. Well, where did he normally stay? All the Romans' governors lived in Caesarea. It was named after Caesar Augustus. It's mentioned, the city is mentioned 15 times in the book of Acts. If you'll remember at the end of chapter 8, you remember when Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian, he baptizes him, and uh, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just like, all right, Philip, I'm sending you somewhere else. And the Ethiopian's like, I don't know what just happened, but Jesus has saved me and I'm baptized. I'm going back to Ethiopia. The Bible says that Philip traveled kind of around the coast. He preached in all the towns, and guess where he ended up? Caesarea. We're told later in Acts chapter 21 that Philip is living in Caesarea. He has four unmarried daughters at that time, and they all prophesy. Maybe that's why they weren't married. Maybe dudes were scared of them. I don't know. But they end up in, in Caesarea. This is a continual statement or, or reference point. And here in chapter 10, God targets a guy 
name Cornelius in Caesarea. The name Cornelius is a very common name in since uh, about 80, or I'm sorry, BC 82. There was a, a politician in Rome that freed thousands of slaves, and his name, his middle name was Cornelius, and so this is a very, very common name. But what's not common about him, I want you to see several characteristics about his life. We're told in verse one that he's a centurion of what might be known as the Italian cohort. First, I want you to see he's a military man. That's very important. We're told he's a centurion. A centurion would be over 100 Roman troops. Six of those troops, or 100 groups, uh, 100 men groups would form what would be called a cohort. Ten cohorts would equal what maybe you've heard of as a legion. But a centurion was an NCO, a non-commissioned officer that in a lot of ways was like the backbone of the Roman army. These were the men that led smaller groups of men. And we actually have his, historical evidence to show that there was actually uh, a, a group, a cohort of 600 men that was actually in this area in the first century. They were probably used as auxiliary forces because this is where Roman, uh, the Roman administration was centered in Caesarea. And so they were mainly, you know, they could be used as bodyguards. They could be used uh, to protect uh, the Roman uh, politicians and, and administrative structure there. But there's something interesting that's told to us about Polybius, by Polybius, a Roman historian. Listen to what he says about centurions. Centurions are required not to be bold or adventurous so much as they are to be good leaders. They should be of steady and prudent mind. They should not be prone to take offense or start fighting without warrant, but should be able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post. So based off that description, we kind of understand a little bit of kind of Cornelius's DNA. You would probably say that he was a disciplined man. He was a smart man. He knew literally when to pick his battles and not. But one thing about him that really plays into this passage is he's a loyal man. Centurions knew their job. They did their job. And this is really a centurion being over 100 men. This is what allowed the Roman army at base level to be so good. Because these men who knew their role, and they were willing to die for that role, keep their post. So we're told that he's a military man. He had people under him, probably from Italy. They could have been freed slaves, but they're called the Italian cohort. Now, why am I starting there? Because you need to understand what's happening here is this is a dude with, with influence. This is a, a strong guy. This is a, uh, most importantly, this is a Gentile guy. If you were going to pick out what's a Gentile look like in Palestine, why would he be there? What would Gentiles be doing in Palestine? Here they are, military service. So we, we, we kind of figure out some of his physical DNA, kind of maybe his makeup, but then Luke directly goes into describing his spirituality. Now, throughout the empire, the Romans would make sure that there were places where their soldiers could worship the gods of Rome. They could worship the pantheon. They could be loyal to that. But what we find here is a centurion, a warrior, a soldier, who is not loyal to the gods of Rome. What do we find out about him? Look in verse 2. He was a devout man. He feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. And he prayed continually to God. That word God-fear there 
is Luke's way of describing this is a Gentile who worships the God of Israel. You find this language in the Gospels, you find this language some places in the New Testament where this is somebody who is not of the tribe of, or is not of the stock of Abraham, but he respects and directs his worship. Notice twice there, God. Theos in the Greek. Luke's using this to say the God that he is worshiping and following is the God of Israel. What do we find out about him? First, we find out he is a devout man. He's a devout man. We're told that he feared God. Cornelius had a high view of God. He didn't have a picture of like the Roman gods that you have to carry from place to place or, or like you. His view of God was someone who was exalted and holy and ruling and reigning. This probably also means that he was in the synagogue. He was active in the Jewish synagogue. He, it says also, with all of his household. This guy believed and what he was doing so much that he made sure his family was involved as well. He's devout. He's very devout. We do find out in Acts chapter 11, verse 3, that he's not circumcised. So he did retain some of his Roman identity, but as far as he goes, he's a Gentile, a Roman soldier, who is though worshiping the God of Judaism. We find also he's not just a military man or a devout man, he's a charitable man. He's a charitable man, it says in verse 2, that he gave alms generously to the people. His faith moved him so much that he acted on it. Who can I help today? This money that I'm making for being a centurion, I'll give it away to the poor. So he wasn't just saying that he believed. He showed that he believed. And then notice it says, he prayed continually to God. He was a praying man. And what's interesting later on is the angel comes and says, your prayers have been offered as a sacrifice or a memorial to the Lord. This was language that would talk about the grain offering in Leviticus. As a Gentile, he couldn't offer sacrifices in the temple, so what was his sacrifice? He prayed continually to God. So this isn't a guy that thinks about God every once in a, in a blue moon. This is a guy who's actively, inwardly, outwardly, publicly, privately, guess what he's doing? He's faithful. He's devout. He's praying. But what's interesting here is he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know the gospel. He's connected to Judaism. Maybe he had learned about Messiah would come. We don't know, but what we do know is that while he was doing all of this, he did not have knowledge of God. So guess what God does graciously? God sends an angel. And when God sends that angel, we find out that it really freaked this soldier out. Verse three, an angel of God came to him and said, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. <laughs> Takes a lot to, man, this is a centurion, right? This is a dude, I mean, he knows war, and he gets scared. What is it? Your prayers have been heard. God has heard your prayers. Your prayers have ascended as a memorial before God. And the angel says, I'm not telling you why, but send people to Joppa, 30 miles south. There's a, there's a, a house of Simon there. He's a tanner. And there's another Simon standing there. His name's Peter. Go get him and bring him back. No other explanation. Remember what Jesus said about a centurion in, you know, centurions in the New Testament, they've given, you know, portrayed in a, a pretty good light. 
You remember the one centurion, Jesus like, I'll come to your house. And he's like, hey, you don't have to do that. I'm a man over, under authority. I know that you have authority. Just speak the word, right? And so this is, it's pretty amazing that this centurion who had uh, rule over 100 men, guess what he does? He's given a command and guess what he does? He obeys it. There's a lot going on here. But what I want you to see, so important, is this guy who's a military guy, strong guy, respected guy. He's devout. He's charitable. He's praying. At that point, if we were to stop, if we were to look at churches in the United States, we would say, we want that dude to serve on every ministry team. We want that dude praying for us. We want that dude involved. We know that that guy is the type of person we want in the community. But I want you to see also, he was a lost man. He hadn't heard the gospel. He hadn't believed on Christ. I think we have to stop here and ask this question. Are some of us trusting our religious action? Are some of us trusting our religious works? Are some of us trusting our religious involvement, our religious activities? And what's amazing here is that God sees his religious activity. And God's about to send him the gospel. What's scary to me in this passage as I think about it, y'all, is that Cornelius is more devout and religious than most people in Jones County, and yet up to this point, he is not saved. He's obeying the light that he knows. He's obeying the light that's given to him. He's responding in the right way, but yet he doesn't know God. It is not religious works that save us. It is the work of Jesus Christ done on our behalf that makes us right with God. Now, I need to apply something here, and I'm just going to put them all up at once. But I would say in our community and in your context, there may be, there may be more than this, but I just want to throw up five hurdles real quick to true faith because this is where Cornelius was. In our community, in Bible Belt churchianity, many people think that morality or good works make them right with God. They think acts of charity are real faith. Now, we're told in the book of James that if we claim to have faith and yet we don't have works, guess what? We don't have faith, right? I mean, if, if we say we know Christ and yet our life doesn't look like Christ, we don't know Christ. The Bible is very clear on that. But in our day, we have this idea, and I don't know where it got invented, that maybe there's this set of scales in heaven. And our good deeds will be weighed against our bad deeds. And if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, guess what? We're getting in. And somehow, like, Peter's in the middle of that. Y'all, Peter ain't at the gate. He's at the feet of Jesus worshiping, okay? But there's this cultural idea that if we are just good enough, we'll get to heaven. There is no one good, no, not one. Their throats are an open grave. Everyone is unrighteous. Everyone has gone on their separate way. That's what the Bible says. But what's scary, too, is that he was in, Cornelius was involved in a local synagogue, and many people in our town may be involved in a local community, whatever it is, of faith. I think a stat came out recently in the last year or so that 65% of people in Jones County don't go to public worship on Sunday morning for whatever reason. But there's a whole lot of people that think because they're involved in the local church that they know God. I've told you this before. 
Get on 16th Avenue, pull into Little Caesars, go in there and sit down for three hours. You will not become a $5 hot and ready or inflation number, $5.99, whatever it is these days. It won't happen. Just because you physically put yourself in some place does not make you what that place is. You come to church, you can go to a small group, you can serve, and still not know God. Religious ceremony, religious rituals. Many people have walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and got baptized. Baptism's awesome, but baptism's awesome is when it's <laughs> preceded by true conversion. Some people think because they got wet, they're, they're okay. Cornelius is doing all of the religious rituals. He doesn't know God. There's also a generic belief in God, which I find interesting. The book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you believe there's one God? Good. The devils are more devout than you are because their belief in God causes them to tremble. And your belief in God thinks that he's just going to be cool with all the sin in your life. Whoever gets those tattoos like only God could judge me, like good luck with that, dude. Like we're not going to win that, are we? And in our culture, there's this generic belief in God. This guy right here just doesn't have a generic belief in God. He acts on it and he still doesn't know God. This last one, very scary in our community, in our life. We can do things for Jesus. We can profess faith in Jesus. We can make a decision for Jesus. And we think we're saved because we walked an aisle, we talked to somebody, and we feel a little better about ourselves. but there's been no life change. See, and the reason why this story is here is not to show us how deep the mercy and love of God go in saving a terrorist like Saul. But this story, in one way, is given to us to show us that being overly religious, devout, going beyond the minimum to do the maximum, still cannot make us right with God. You see, what we find out was Cornelius needed to hear the gospel and be changed by the Lord. That's the point. That's the point. He needed to hear the gospel because it is the gospel that's the power of God into salvation. And can I just ask you this this morning? What are you trusting in for your salvation? Are you trusting religious works? Are you trusting acts of charity? Are you trusting financial giving? Are you trusting the fact that you come every Sunday to a church? So glad you're here. But we love you enough to tell you that that can never save you. And this is why an angel comes. And you know what's awesome here? Think about this. It's just popped in my head. Sometimes it happens like this. The angel does not share the gospel with Cornelius because God has sovereignly decided that it is his people who share the gospel to other people. God, wouldn't it be a lot easier that way? It pleases God through ordinary people like us to share the good news of Christ. Cornelius needed to hear the gospel. Well, then why do we list all of these religious things about him? Because in God's very gracious, sovereign way, God was preparing Cornelius to hear the gospel. Can I just tell you this? Your, your life may have just 
gone in a separate direction. You don't understand why you are where you are. You don't understand why you live in Laurel, Mississippi. You don't understand why you're sitting here this morning. You don't understand why you're watching on a live stream. You may have just clicked. Maybe you watch us every week. Can I just tell you that if you don't know Christ yet, God has sovereignly engineered the circumstances of your life so that you may hear that a Savior has come down from heaven. He has done what you cannot do. He has lived a perfect life. He has died in your place for your sin. He has rose again from the grave, and he offers you the opportunity to be right with him and to know him, to turn in your sin and receive his righteousness. And we don't care what you've done or how dirty you feel. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's the hope we have. This is the gospel. This is the announcement of good news. And so the gospel is not just for the one who has been steamrolled by sin, lives in sin, loves sin, has been wrecked and ruined by sin. The gospel is for the person that thinks they're the greatest person in the world because both are sins before holy God. Some of you this morning just feel compelled. Some of you this morning don't know God because you are trusting in your religious activity for God or your, your decision for God. How subtle would the enemy do that to you? Think about that. That your trust for salvation would be in things done for Jesus and not Jesus. The only faith that saves us is a complete abandonment of our own works to a complete trust in his work alone. So there's a vision here. And what's the vision for? It is to prepare Cornelius, as we'll see in the next few weeks, for Peter to come and for Peter to share the gospel and for Cornelius and his entire family to hear. But there's another vision. Let's go to verse nine and we'll read this section on Peter. The next day, as they were on their journey, that's the people sent from Cornelius, and they were approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's noon. So these people have already left Caesarea on the 30-mile south journey to Joppa, and Peter doesn't know anything about it. There's no email that's sent. There's no re request for a, a, you know, a, a GPS tag so that they can show up at the right place. Peter doesn't know about this. Simon the Tanner doesn't know about this, but they're on, the, on their way. And Peter became hungry and wanted something to eat. I love that part of that verse. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Peter didn't know what's going on. We find out in chapter nine that he had been visiting, been going back and forth in this area. He had been in the city of Lada and he'd been in a few other places, but now he's living at Joppa with Simon the Tanner. And if you ever just Again, I love this. It just seems like the biblical writers, like the Holy Spirit really wanted us to see the human side of Peter, okay? Like it, there's just always, in whatever narrative that describes Peter, whether it's in the gospel or Acts, there's always just something to let you know that Peter's just a dude. 
And what I love about this, Peter's like, I'm hungry. Y'all fix it while I go pray. I mean, I just think it's, that's incredible. I'm not going to fix my own lunch. I'm going to go pray while you fix my lunch. Okay, Peter, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, okay? So he goes up to eat at noon, or he goes up to pray at noon while they're fixing the food. And he has this crazy dream. And the dream is that this sheet comes down. And he sees in this vision this great sheet coming down, and on it are all kinds of animals. And he sees all these animals, and we'll get into this in just a moment. But the voice says, all right, it's basically like whatever you want to eat, eat. Like kill and eat. Like there you go. Some of y'all deer season's coming up. This will be like your memory verse for deer season. Arise, kill and eat. Okay, there it is. You can memorize it in the stand, then you go live it out. Here it is. And, and Peter's like, but, but, but I can't because I haven't ever eaten unclean food. And so guess what? It's just kind of like he's watched this dream and it's just kind of like rewind real quick, play it again. Rewind again, play it again. Three different times. And then Peter, lunch is ready. Well, I don't know if I'm hungry right now. I got to sit and think about this. Like what is going on? Cornelius has a vision. And the reason he has the vision is to produce change. God is going to graciously share the gospel with Cornelius so that Cornelius might be saved. Peter has a vision. What's it for? I want you to see first that Peter was undergoing change already. If you're a Christian here this morning, guess what? You have been changed and you will continue to be changed. Praise God. Our sanctification Positionally, it happens when we're converted, and then guess what? Relationally, it happens throughout our lifetime. I married Lauren on July the 22nd, 2006, and I'm still finding out what that means today, okay? Pray for her. She lives with me. This is like the Christian life. We start a relationship with Jesus, and then we grow in that relationship with him. Peter had already been undergoing change. Now, think about our dude Peter, Okay? Think about him in the Gospels. Think about him as the, the, the brash fisherman. Think about him as the guy who can't swing a sword. He tries to aim for people's necks. He cuts off ears. I mean, Peter's the dude. Peter's the guy that talks first and thinks third. I mean, this is him. But think about what kind of change he's been undergoing. In Acts chapter 2, what does he do? He's the, he's the preacher at Pentecost, and he preaches to Jews under every nation. Think about Acts 1-8 with Peter's life. You'll be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So, so Peter's preached the gospel. He was scared of a girl, denied Jesus three times, but now he stands up, he preaches the gospel to Jews under every nation. Then he's one of those apostles that teach the 3,000 new believers in the early church. Then in chapter three, God uses him to, to raise up that paralyzed guy, and then he gets arrested for it. And when he stands before the council, he doesn't wet his pants and get scared and run away. He witnesses boldly for Christ. And then in chapter 5, he stands up and he says, Ananias and Sapphira, you lie to the Holy Spirit. They go in the ground. Peter continues his ministry. The rest of chapter 5, he's ministering in Jerusalem. We don't hear from Peter for two chapters. Chapter 8, what happens? Philip preaches the gospel. Now, not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, but what? Now in Samaria. And Peter's there. Now he gets this vision. <laughs> With animals, kill and eat, I have no idea what's going on. Peter had been undergoing change. So much so that he was in Joppa at the house of a tanner. You know what tanners do? They take animals, clean them out, 
take all the stuff off, get the hide, right? The Jews really didn't like this because sometimes there were animals that were clean and unclean, but Peter's come a long way, y'all. He's hanging out. I, I mean, for real, if you could think like who Peter's BFF would be, it would have to be a tanner, right? I mean, just that's the way it has to be. I mean, just kind of the way you kind of get Peter's personality. This is the type of dude he is. So he's staying at this house, and here comes the vision. So notice that up to this point, God has been working in Peter's life, been expanding his outreach, been expanding his mind, that the gospel is just not for people in Jerusalem, it's for Jews, for every nation. And then, wow, we went on a mission trip down to Samaria with John, and and these half-breeds and these heretics, the Holy Spirit's falling on them. But Peter needed more change. He had been being changed, but he needed more change. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What's he referring to? Just note this, in Leviticus chapter 11, all of it, that'd be a great read for a Sunday afternoon. Leviticus 11, 1 through 47, okay? Leviticus 20, 25 and 26. There were laws in the Old Testament about clean and unclean animals based off the hoof, based off where, what type of genus and species it is, all these different types of animals. They were basically clean animals and unclean animals. Guess what? Eat the clean animals. Guess what? Don't eat the unclean animals. Why is that? The Old Testament food laws particularly were to show God's distinction of his people among the nations. This is why you have those laws in the Old Testament. Because God wanted his people to look different than the world. Aren't you glad for the new covenant? There's no such thing as bacon being unclean. Somebody get a Pentecostal flag, start waving it, right? I mean, this is good stuff. It's great stuff. But in his mind right here, Peter says, in his mind, he says, I'm not going to go do that. I'm not going to kill and eat. I'm not going to touch unclean animals because I've never done that, Lord. And what does God say? Probably the voice of Christ here. What God has made clean, don't call common. There's actually a reference just like this in Mark chapter 7. Mark is the testimony of Peter. And what's interesting is, in that passage, there is a, a aside in parenthesis that says, by saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Peter's still hanging on to Old Testament food laws being in effect. Don't you just love it that Jesus used the example of reptiles because this helps me out. Like, obviously, food was Peter's love language, okay? Like, that's for one illustration to understand this, right? Peter, food, I would eat that, but it's unclean. What in the world is Jesus trying to do? Where we'll pick up next week is while Peter is pondering, what does this dream mean? Downstairs, there's three Gentiles getting ready to knock on the door. Because in God's economy, there's no such thing as a clean person and an unclean person. In God's mind, there's no such thing as those who are worthy to hear the gospel and those who are not. 
In God's mind, there's no difference in where you come from or who you are or what you've done. Everyone can hear the gospel and be saved. What is Jesus doing here? You see, just like Cornelius needed to hear the gospel, Peter needed to understand the gospel deeper. Why? So that his life could continually be changed by the gospel. Just the tip of the hand, but as Justin walks through the rest of chapter 10 next week and the week after, what we're going to learn is, is that oftentimes we close have these such small circles about this person can be saved, this person can't. God can save this person, but God can't save that person. And let me just tell you this, sometimes the people that need to be saved are the people that you don't think need to be saved. And sometimes the people that you need to keep praying for to be saved are the ones that you've given up on because you think they're too far gone. Guess what happens? In Acts chapter nine, God can save the worst. In Acts chapter 10, God can save the best. Both have fallen short of the glory of God. What is this dream for? Peter needed sanctification. We find out later in the New Testament that Paul started calling himself the least of the apostles, and later he called him the least of the saints. And at the end of uh, his ministry in 1 Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. In the last chapter of the Bible, the John the apostle, he's received this whole revelation, and then wrongly he bows down and tries to worship an angel. This does me great encouragement that the apostles still needed stuff worked out in their life. And guess what? You and me do too. So how do we apply this? First question, are you merely religious or have you been born again? Are you trusting your works? Or have you come to the place where you solely trust the work of Jesus? And the work of Jesus, when fully trusted in, changes the life completely. You got life change. Are you a new creation? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Second application, there is no end to maturity for the follower of Jesus. If you've been born again, God is fully committed to make you like himself, like his son. He may spend your entire life teaching you one lesson. God's eternally patient. He's gonna keep rubbing that sandpaper. He's going to keep sticking in there. He's going to keep dealing with that sin. He's going to keep dealing with that attitude. You know why? Because he has promised himself faithful to you, and he will keep his promise. There's no finality to maturity. The moment that we think we've arrived in the Christian life is exhibit A on that we have not arrived. So you know what that does? He's always going to be teaching us something. Be humble, be teachable. This last question, how big is your gospel vision? Is it big enough for prostitutes and tax collectors? Is it big enough for Pharisees and self-righteous? Is it big enough for people that come to church every week but don't know God? See, every time someone gets saved, it's a miracle. And sometimes when some people get saved, it's a surprise. I thought they would never get saved. 
For some people, man, I thought you already were. But God knows our hearts. And God can pull back all the plastic and all the artificial and all the surface and get down to our hearts. And either our heart has been transformed by his grace and his gospel or we remain in our sin. There's no option, third option. There's no other door. That's who all of us are this morning. Can I just tell you what the angel is going to tell or what what Peter's going to tell Cornelius? There's been a savior who's come down. He's lived in your place, he's died in your place, and he rose from the dead, and he can change you. Whether that's you in the gutter of sin, whether that's you on the throne of self-righteousness, Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost. And if you don't know him today, cry out for mercy, ask him to save you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. Father, we wanna thank you. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you. People like me that were so self-righteous, God, you came and opened my eyes. I think about my parents, Lord. I think about my in-laws. I think about my wife, God. That you just don't save people that are outwardly the worst, God. You save people who look pretty decent on the outside, but are eaten up by sin. And God, my prayer this morning is if there's a Cornelius in our, in our midst today, that Lord, they would not trust their work for you, that they would solely trust in Jesus' work for them. God, you're so gracious to open our eyes. Lord, I do pray for your Christians today, your believers today. And Lord, we would not call common, Lord, what you call clean. But God, you would erase every distinction of people in our minds except those who are in Christ and those that need Christ. So God, open our eyes, open our our vision, take away our, our biases, Lord, take away our presuppositions, take away in all the ways that we crowd and clutter our mind. rather than seeing, Lord, you pursuing the world for salvation. So, Lord, help us this morning with the word. Help us this morning through the scriptures. Church, as we sit before the Lord, as we've heard his word, maybe some of us this morning need to trade in our self-righteousness and our religious work for Jesus. If you need Christ this morning, when we stand and sing, A few of us pastors will be in the back of the room. Come find us. We'd love to pray with you and share with you how you can know Christ. Maybe you just need prayer this morning. Come grab one of us. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe just fresh on your mind as a believer, the Lord takes you back to when he sent someone to share the gospel with you. How amazing that is. Maybe you need to pray for someone this morning. Whatever it is, however the Lord has spoken to you through the word, be obedient to it. Lord, we're thankful for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for thinking of us when we didn't know you and for pursuing us with the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing. We're at the back. If you need counseling, if you need to talk to one of us, Daniel, come lead us, brother.